Welcome to Travel Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Ace Cultural Tours. Hello, it's Artemis here, and in today's episode, I had the pleasure of speaking to Honor Cargill Martin about one of the Roman world's most notorious women. Messalina was the third wife of Emperor Claudius, and she's the subject of Honor's non-fiction debut, Messalina, a story of empire, slander, and adultery. Well, Honor, thank you so much for joining us today on Travels Through Time. It's such a pleasure to have you and to talk about this really fantastic book that you've written congratulations no thank you so much for having me um so uh, first of all you studied classical archaeology and ancient history at university um not that long ago because I think we're a similar age actually so it's kind of fun to have a contemporary on the podcast I wanted to ask you what is it that absolutely fascinates you about this period of history I think what I love, so I specialise now in the kind of late Roman Republic and the early Roman Empire. And I think what I love most about this period of history, about ancient history in general, but particularly about this period, is that I think it's one of the few periods of history that is both so utterly, utterly alien to our modern society but which we also have like a really remarkable amount of quite like granular evidence about because with kind of this period of Roman history, we have all the material evidence from places like Pompeii and a huge kind of body of inscriptions and statues and cameos and coins. And we also have like a a really remarkable amount of surviving literary evidence, partly because the Romans themselves perceived this to be a real kind of golden age of literary output and also partly because kind of the the people who came after them, like in kind of the Christian societies, like wanted to learn Latin and were using these as, as learning texts. And so we have like people's letters, their speeches, their kind of histories. And I think it's very rare that you have that with a society that is so old and so kind of unfamiliar in so many ways. No, 100%. It's like a world that we feel so familiar with. But also, I can imagine there's so much that we know about it that's kind of like, it's been reinterpreted so many times over the ages to almost the point where you feel like what actually was really happening? Because, you know, am I just thinking of this period as in the Renaissance way of thinking about it? Or am I actually just taking it as it is? And I was wondering if there was ever any time when you've been studying where you've been like, oh, that's actually, I'm really surprised by that because that is really different to like the Renaissance interpretation of classical history. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. This is a very difficult period of history for that because it is such an iconic period for a lot of the kind of Western societies that come after it. You were saying Renaissance, exactly. And then also like during the Enlightenment, the neoclassical, these cultures interpret and reinterpret this, what they perceive to be this kind of golden age of Roman culture and society. And that adds like these layers of mythologization. And there has certainly been times when I've been like, oh yeah, yeah, like I know about that. This happened, this happened, it happened here, it looked like this. 
And you go back to the actual sources and you realise that is literally nowhere in any of the sources. It was just made up by some random Florentine man who was bored one day in his office. He was like, oh, I think I'll set this in like a nice kind of garden scene or I think I'll make her into a total nightmare. But that's like actually nowhere in the sources. Um, and so that is something that you have to grapple with. And I think particularly, obviously, when you're working with the history of women, those layers of mythologization is something that you have to be hyper aware of. Absolutely. And that and that leads me on really nicely to the next question I wanted to ask you about, which is our kind of heroine or our protagonist that we're going to be talking about today and the subject of your book, Messalina. Um, can you tell listeners a bit about how you first were introduced to Messalina? Yeah, so Messalina is a Roman empress. Uh, she reigns as the wife of the Emperor Claudius from the time of his accession upon the assassination of Caligula in 41 AD until her assassination slash execution in these kind of very dramatic circumstances in 48 AD. Um, and I actually came across Messalina because I was interested in processes of um, like rumor creation in the Julio-Claudian world. Uh, when you read something like Suetonius's Lives of the Caesars, which are this, this succession of biographies of the Julio-Claudian emperors, um, there is this huge emphasis on kind of these crazy, particularly crazy, like sexual anecdotes and rumours. And I was interested in the processes by which those anecdotes kind of came into being. And the one that I, the, the set of rumours I ended up focusing on were a set of rumours that associate this empress with prostitution. Um, so there are these rumours that Messalina left the palace every night and went and worked in like this low class brothel in the slums of Rome. Um, just to satisfy her sexual needs. And there are these other rumors that she, that she held a 24 hour sex competition with the most notorious courtesan in Rome for who could sleep with more men in a 24 hour period. Um, and that she won with 25. And I was looking at these rumors and I was just like, these are so patently ridiculous. I mean, even on a logistical level, this is one of the most well protected and the most recognizable women in Rome. It's simply impossible that she could have been doing this. And so, as interested in what is so compelling to the people who are creating these rumours. Why do they want to say this about this woman? And how have we ended up with a situation where one of the most respected and powerful women in the empire, just a few decades after her death, people are able to kind of be spreading rumours like this about her. And so I started to look more and more into Messalina's actual life story, and I found it just incredibly fascinating and compelling and also I felt like it was like under under looked at she'd been underestimated well, that was going to be my next question is what other ha, has there ever been a kind of life of Messalina before what were your secondary sources that we, you were using when you were writing it or is she just really under like you say completely ignored that there, there hasn't in English, been a life of Messalina. There have been um, a couple of scholarly works, uh, brilliant scholarly works recently in French that have also focused a lot on like the reception of her in later art, which is much more prevalent in kind of Francophone culture than it is in, in England. But in general, I think in this period, she's been wildly undervalued as a, a, a really like politically and culturally important figure, someone who actually like has a lot of agency in this period in terms of very directly, like who is kind of being successful in Roman politics in this period, who is coming out on top, like what is happening in Claudius's court and also in terms of developing 
new ways that those court kind of factions and court politics functions. I think that the the focus on her sexuality has led to this kind of assumption that she didn't do interesting things beyond that. And I think it's so sad that that is such, I, I'm sure that a lot of the women listening will understand that dynamic. There is this perception that is so prevalent that if a woman is perceived to be kind of attractive or sexual, then automatically she's not perceived to be kind of interesting or successful in her career or kind of serious yeah exactly Mm. we're gonna meet her properly and um join her in a very significant year in her life shortly but um just before we get into that before we started recording we were talking a bit about you were telling me about the um the time you'd spent kind of carefully compiling the wonderful family tree that's at the start of your book and how long it took you and I wanted to ask you you know, this world, I think, can seem really opaque, especially to a kind of casual, someone with a casual interest in Roman history. How do you immerse yourself in that world and really get into it in this kind of vivid way, which you clearly, it comes across so clearly in the book. It's very, I feel like when I was reading it, I felt like I was there with these characters. How do you get that? How do you make that happen? Yeah, it's such an interesting question. And I think that you're so right to pick up on the things with like the family relationships and the names because so many of the characters in this period because they're all kind of vaguely horribly related they all have very similar or sometimes actually the same name um and i think that that is actually something that is incredibly it's probably like the most off-putting thing to a reader because you start reading and you're just like i have no i've lost my place i have no idea who these people are Um, And so I think that is something that has turned a lot of people off Roman history, whereas actually once once you get past that and once you get used to it, it's actually a period that I would argue is quite easy to immerse yourself in because we do have an awful lot of evidence um, and a lot of very kind of descriptive and evocative evidence about these characters, but also about the whole world that they were living in. And I think I'm so glad that for my undergrad, I did a combined archaeology and history degree because I think what helped me really like immerse myself in this period is also like looking at the material culture of it as well which we have an awful lot of and if you feel like you know what rooms these people were living in what kind of buildings they were seeing when they walked out of their houses what what their statues look like what their what their dinner parties might have consisted of then I think it it makes it much easier to feel like these are kind of real people and interesting subjects of like historical inquiry. Mm, Absolutely. I mean, I was having a conversation with a friend the other day about what's the most historical place we'd ever visited. And Rome is definitely like that, isn't it? Because when you go, I mean, I've only ever been once on a school trip, but it was really striking how much of the kind of ancient city feels it feels very present and you can really walk around and get a sense of the kind of topography of that of that world. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's also the thing that I really love. Rome is probably my favourite city in the world. And I think the thing which I love most about it is that you can literally see how people have built the city on top of layer upon layer upon layer. And you get these columns built into Renaissance palaces. And it's it's just this messy, messy kind of composite like lasagna like city it's so fantastic 
Well, I think without further ado, I think we should we should let's get there. Let's go. <laughs> um, let's go. So, um, Honor, if you could travel through time, what year would you like to travel back in time to and where? So I'm going to go to 48 AD um, and obviously I'm going to go to Rome. Um, there are a couple of reasons that I picked 48 AD, partly because towards the end of 48 AD, we get the fall of Messalina, who obviously is the subject of my book, but also the way that it's described in the sources is so dramatic and so cinematic. I, I just, oh my God, I would have loved to see it the way that it's described and kind of assess like what was what was really going on it's such a it's it's a very theatrical event this is also I would argue a year it's right at the kind of height of the Julio-Claudian period and I think it encapsulates a lot of the key themes that really define the history of this dynasty and that, that make this dynasty so fascinating and so kind of compelling like throughout the years we really see the the transfer of kind of power from the Senate to the Imperial Court and the family here. I mean, this is a process that has been going on for since the beginning of the dynasty, but the events at the end of AD 48, I think, makes it really abundantly clear that what really matters now in Roman politics is not the speeches that people are making in the Senate. It is the relationships between different individuals working within the Imperial Court and, and the family ties, kind of who's married to who, who is mother or uncle or stepfather to who. And I think that the events that occur towards the end of 48 AD make that really, really patent. I think that the the scenes that I've chosen, and this year in general, I think also demonstrates just really how kind of dangerous and dramatic and cutthroat and fast moving this period of politics can be. And I mean, obviously, that's not ideal if you are a member of the Julio-Claudian dynasty. But I think it's what really fascinates me about this period. I mean, the, the scenes that I've chosen, the first two occur maybe one, maybe two days apart. And the last one is only a few months later. And over the course of those scenes, we see the destruction of a faction that has really held an extreme amount of power for the best part of a decade and the movement of the dynasty in an entirely new direction that will define kind of the the next de- like decade and a half of its rule and also its end and i also think that the the events of this year and how they're told in the sources tell us a lot about how this period of roman history was written and memorialized and mythologized by the Romans themselves. So when these histories are written kind of 50 to 150 years after the events we're going to talk about, it's really like presented in the service of a narrative that that makes Rome's first dynasty this kind of thing, which is defined by these, these personal passions, by kind of drama, sex, ambition, this sort of sensual like irrationality almost and I think it's so interesting to watch how that narrative is constructed and I think in the theatricality of these events we really see that process. Well I mean you've set the scene for us beautifully I'm really looking forward to getting into it. So Anna could you tell us where we are for our first scene in 48 AD if we were in a place where would we be and who would we be with okay so it is the high autumn of 48 AD 
and we are in the Imperial Palace on the Palatine. Um, this is an incredibly strange space, really. It's, it's a monumental space, but it's also a, a very weird one. I mean, Imperial House on the Palatine was first just the home that Augustus, the first emperor, bought. And it was actually quite a, a modest dwelling. Um, but he then started buying up the property around it. Um, and then there were new palaces constructed by his successors, Tiberius and Caligula. And you've ended up with this situation where the Imperial Palace has kind of morphed and spread like this sort of fungus across the whole of the Palatine Hill, right down to meet the Forum. And it's become like this incredibly strange space because there are domestic spaces, but there are also spaces for kind of politics and for state visits and um, banquets and receptions. And I think it's a space that's very reflective of the tensions of this time because the imperial family is still trying to present themselves as not straightforward monarchs. And yet they realistically hold all of the political power in the state. And so this is an, a, a kind of house of contradictions, I would say. And it's also this incredibly kind of vast monumental space there. Are, it's wildly luxurious. Parts of it are, are designed in kind of the more austere styles of the Augustan period, but then parts of it have been kind of subjected to Caligula's um, excesses. And we know Caligula was quite a keen uh, amateur interior designer. And we can imagine that those spaces were really quite uh, extra. And it would have had kind of these gardens and these space for parties. Architecturally, it also demonstrates those tensions. So we're at this party. Who are we with? What What is Messalina doing there? And what's the, take us through the kind of um, the characters or the events of the day. Why are they having a big party? Okay, so it is the middle of the autumn and the grape harvest has just come in. This is a party that is in celebration of the harvest and of Bacchus, the god of wine. Um, we are with the Empress Messalina. She is the one who is holding this party. And we are also with her associate, almost certainly her lover, Gaius Silius, um, who is this incredibly handsome, successful, charismatic nobleman. He's consul designate for the next year. He's meant to be the most beautiful young man in Rome. And him and Messalina have um, allegedly been having a very, very indiscreet and very passionate affair for quite some time by this point. Um, Messalina's husband, the Emperor Claudius, is not present. He is actually not in Rome. He's, he's not far away, though. He's at Ostia, which is kind of the main port of Rome on the coast. And he is there in an official capacity. He is making sacrifices to ensure the safe passage of uh, the grain that comes from um, Alexandria in Egypt to feed the huge population of the city. Um, and this is a, an incredibly important job for the emperor. If, if the people aren't fed, you know, it's it's game over. So he is at the port city doing that. Uh, Messalina has pled illness and stayed behind in Rome, but clearly that's not her real motivation. So we're with Messalina, we're with Gaius Silius, and we're with this kind of huge like raft of their friends, their associates, their kind of, their social crowd, I guess. And 
This is, um, maybe this isn't the most historical of questions, but I was always intrigued when you hear descriptions like this of like how fun these parties would be. You know, it's kind of making me think like in um, in the secret history, you know, when they have, they host their own bacchanalian ritual and it basically sounds kind of a bit scary. <laughs> so sometimes when I hear, I read about these amazing parties, I'm like, would it be fun or would it actually be quite intense? As we're going to see, like, it's very unclear what is actually going on at this party. Messalina's enemies will later claim that this is actually a bigamous wedding that's occurring between Messalina and Gaius Silius. I think that that's really very unlikely. Um, it's, it's almost impossible to construct a narrative in which that makes sense or is possible or plausible. It's also claimed that this is kind of a celebration of the vintage and of the, the god Bacchus. And there are certainly elements of Bacchic celebration here. Um, it's not clear whether this is kind of, it, it doesn't seem to be like an, an official kind of religious celebration of, of the wine god. It's more that this is a, a kind of festival party that is drawing on elements of these festivals and, and rituals. Um, but yeah, I mean, the party, as it's described in the sources, sounds fantastic and I mean I gave you all these historical reasons at the beginning why I chose 48 AD but if I'm honest I mean it's really because I I want to be at this party. Tacitus tells us that the entire imperial palace has been kind of given over to the this celebration and if you can imagine a space like that that's had and you have like endless funds and you've made it over for a party I think you would have done a pretty good job of it. He claims that they've set up vats for winemaking all throughout the imperial palace and that wine is being made as the guests drink it and that it's actually being made faster than they can drink it so the wine is being pressed and it's going into these vats which are then overflowing faster than Messalina's guests can get through it which is just a fantastic image I mean what a dream right it's a costume party to an extent as well um, Messalina is there as a maenad, so one of the, one of the female followers of the wine god. Um, and she's there wearing kind of flowing gowns. Her hair is loose down her back. She's carrying the thyrsus, which is the, the traditional kind of staff of the followers of Bacchus. That's quite an interesting detail that Testus includes because the thyrsus is a, a double-edged sword, really, in the ancient world, in, in the mythology that surrounds Dionysus sometimes this is this generally is a staff that's used for kind of dancing and for creating rhythm for these sort of frenzied dances that that are associated with his rituals but it's also quite often in the mythology turned around and used as a deadly weapon as well so I think it's interesting that that detail is included that she's carrying that staff and her lover Gaius Silius is there dressed um in a kind of mythological outfit as well. He's wearing the kind of boots that are associated with tragic actors, interestingly, uh, given how things proceed. And the guests are dancing these kind of rhythmic, wild dances. They're singing, there's music, and people are kind of doing stupid things. One of their friends, uh, the imperial doctor Vatius Valens, at one point climbs up a tree and everyone's like beneath him and they're clamoring, like, what can you see? What can you see? And he has this incredible view all over Rome and he can see um, kind of down towards the coast. And he says, I can see there's a storm gathering over Ostia. And that foreshadows what happens next, I suppose. And would you, how, do, 
how does this wonderful wild party get misconstrued and used against Messalina? Okay, it's, it's a big question. So I think that Messalina has now been one of the most powerful people um, in the empire for the best part of a decade. And you don't get to do that without being pretty cutthroat yourself. I mean, she's quite ruthlessly uh, engaged in kind of um, campaigns against her political enemies, um, removed them, had them executed, exiled, um, in order to ensure her own position and that of her children and also that of Claudius as well. Um, along the way, she has made some enemies and particularly towards the final years of her reign, she seems to really be making a, a, a couple of kind of missteps. Um, she removes this incredibly powerful and wealthy Gallic senator called Valerius Asiaticus, um, who is also very popular in the Senate. And she moves against him and she is successful and he, he ends up um, being kind of forced to suicide. But she very almost apparently isn't successful. It almost goes against her. Um, she also uh, allegedly removes one of the imperial freedmen who had previously been kind of one of her closest allies, which again must have struck fear into her other like allies among Claudius's court and among these kind of powerful freedmen advisors. Um, I think that there is a growing sense towards the end of 40, towards kind of the end of 47 and throughout 48 AD that Messalina is becoming potentially something of a loose cannon. Um, this affair with Gaius Silius uh, is also allegedly um, being conducted increasingly indiscreetly, which again is is another danger, obviously, on a, on a political analysis. And so I think that there is this increasing sense among Messalina's former allies that potentially uh, she is beginning to look like more of a liability than an asset. When Messalina falls, which we're, we're going to see that happen in the next scene, um, it is at the instigation of a man named Narcissus, who had been a slave and he was then freed by the emperor and has risen to this incredibly powerful position as an advisor. And he had been Messalina's closest ally in all of her kind of early intrigues. It's always Messalina and Narcissus. Um, they are associated in almost every kind of situation, every like debacle. It's always them together. He is the one who orchestrates this kind of move against her. He seems to claim that Messalina and Silius have married and that this is going to be the start of a coup against the Emperor Claudius. Um, and this obviously induces Claudius to come back from Ostia and to put an end to this kind of affair, coup thing that is going on at Rome. Hello, it's Peter here, and it's time for a word about our partners, Ace Cultural Tours, in this break. Spring is now in full swing. The days are getting longer, and it's the ideal time of year to get out exploring. In fact, as I speak, that is exactly what Ace are doing. To give you a sense of the range of tours they conduct, let me tell you about their ones for June alone. You can cruise along Czech rivers with them and enjoy the music and art of Prague. 
You can head further east to tour the citadels of Transylvania. If music's your thing, then you can head to the Bach Festival in Leipzig or the Olbra Festival in Suffolk. Then there's tours to all the charming corners of the British Isles, to the St Magnus Festival on Orkney, or to view Irish castles, or to discover Roman Anglesey, or to learn about the churches of Norfolk, or the artists of Cornwall. If you're after a bit more sun than our temperamental islands can safely promise, then you could always jet off to learn about northern Greece with the expert guide, Andrew Wilson. Find the tour that's perfect for you at www.aceculturaltours.co.uk Holidays for the culturally curious. That leads us on really nicely to our second scene, to this kind of fateful moment where it all starts to go horribly wrong. So would you like to tell us where we are for our second scene? Okay, so we are on the Via Ostiensis, which is the main thoroughfare that takes you from Rome to its port city, um, Ostia. And Claudius is in his carriage uh, with Narcissus and a couple of his other advisors. And they are, they're heading towards Rome. Narcissus has broken the news of Messalina's alleged marriage, alleged coup, um, probable affair to Claudius at Ostia. And interestingly, he actually used two of Claudius's mistresses to break that news to him originally, which I think is quite ironic. But the irony evidently was lost on them. Mm. And so the news has been broken. Claudius has called this kind of council of his advisors and they've all said, you know, this is a very dangerous situation. If you don't go back to Rome immediately and put an end to this, your throne could be taken by Messalina and Gaius Silius. So Claudius is heading back towards Rome. He's on the Via Ostiensis and he begins to hear from down the road Messalina and she is approaching and she is trying to get close enough to Claudius to beg him to spare her life. She is asserting her innocence and she is kind of pleading um, their shared children. They have two children together, Britannicus, who's probably around seven at this point, and Octavia, who is probably around uh, eight or nine. And she has brought her children with her. Um, They've tried to get close to Claudius um, and she is begging him to spare her and to kind of look to their family and everything that she has done for him. And he is being distracted by Narcissus, who is standing next to him on the Virostensis, handing him document after document that purports to prove Messalina's guilt and her adulteries and her kind of plotting against the emperor. So he's trying to distract Claudius because Claudius is famously in love with Messalina, obsessed with Messalina. And there is this fear that goes through all of the accounts of this kind of event that if Claudius sees Messalina and is given the opportunity to look at her and hear her, then he's going to forgive her. He won't be able to resist. And so Narcissus is trying to distract him. Messalina is shouting. Eventually, she is removed. The children are removed. And Claudius's entourage continues off down the Via Ostiensis towards Rome. I mean, what a dramatic scene and and, um, told so beautifully. Thank you so much for kind of taking us there into that moment. 
I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about sources because obviously so much of the work that you've had to do with this book is about reinterpreting sources which are quite misogynistic or portray Messalina in a particular way for a particular purpose. How do you go about reinterpreting it in order to get to the kind of truth, if that's possible, of what happened and away from the anti-Messalina agenda that's laced, that a lot is laced with a lot of, a lot of these sources is laced with? Yeah, I would say that this scene is probably the most difficult and pose the most difficulties in terms of interpretation. Because the narrative that we get in Tacitus, which is that Messalina actually did um, marry Gaius Silius and actually was plotting against Claudius, is just, and I think all kind of modern historians agree, is untenable. There's no evidence that once kind of this marriage is revealed to Claudius that they try and um, kind of follow through on this like coup that they had allegedly planned. And I think if that there's no way that you would ever take the step of, of marriage without having plans for what you're going to do afterwards. Also, there's no benefit to Messalina in this. I mean, it doesn't put her in a better position. Her, she is empress, her son is heir. There, there's no, there's no upside to her uh, doing all of this. And I mean, even Tastus, who is not, is generally, I would say, potentially overconfident as a historian, is very dubious in his relation of this scene. He says, I, I know that this is going to sound unbelievable, but honestly, this is just what I've been told. And so I think right from the start, like historians are, are taking this with something of a pinch of salt. And I think what you have to do is look at the accounts that we get in um, other sources as well um, and any material evidence we have. So we have material evidence that Messalina definitely does fall in disgrace. Her statues are smashed. Her name is chiseled off inscriptions and it lines up in terms of time. This definitely happened. She definitely did fall, was accused of something awful, um, was removed, executed. We then have to look at... Uh, how that happened, who was involved in it. So we find in all of the sources, the involvement of um, Narcissus and these kind of key imperial freedmen. Um, and I think what we begin to see, we, we don't find the same emphasis on this idea of like marriage or like a coup in the other sources. And I think what we begin to see is that what we have is really a narrative of Messalina um, being removed by these powerful imperial freedmen because she has and if we look at the years leading up to it that makes total logical sense that they would want to do that because clearly there are increasing issues in these relationships in these alliances and also potentially in Messalina's political judgment um, and so I think what we begin to see is a narrative of a narrative kind of taking form in which these allegations that filter through to the sources as kind of fact are actually political, politicized creations of the time. Mm, mm, I, I see what you mean, and and on the um, on the adultery front, because that's obviously the biggest sort of criticism that is is levelled against her is that she's this famously promiscuous woman, um, as you described. She was having affairs, but what was the sort of attitude at the time towards? extramarital affairs I mean how common was it how unusual was it that she would be sleeping with someone else it's such it's such a big question um and it's one that's almost impossible to answer I mean there is always this tension between kind of ideal and normative behavior and actual behavior 
Um, and we see that even in our own society, but obviously that's going to be much more pronounced in a society in which kind of sexual behavior is so much more kind of significant to the like construction of society in a way, because this is a deeply, deeply patriarchal society and female fidelity within marriage is very important from a legal point of view, right? In terms of like inheritances and things like that. And so we'd actually seen adultery laws being propagated under Augustus um, as part of this kind of, Augustus has this, wants to present himself as a sort of rectifier of Roman morals in a way, a, a kind of family values, I suppose, in, in a Roman sense. And so he propagated all these laws that had outlawed adultery, not that it had been acceptable before that, but this has become like a newly kind of important political touch point. And you could now get exiled uh, for adultery. You could lose a lot of your property. It was a very, it, it was a big deal from a legal point of view. The real situation, of course, was more complicated. In any society, even when we look at kind of Christian societies where adultery is not only punishable, but you also have this idea that you're going to go to hell for it. Even when you look at those societies, we have evidence of people kind of having extramarital affairs. People don't always behave kind of in their best interest and according to societal norms. When with the question of like how often people were actually doing this, it's, I think it's impossible to answer. But I think it was obviously less black and white than the law would want to have it. The relationships and marriages in the Roman world among the elite were always like arranged, right? And so love was conceptualized in when you look at like their poetry and their art as something that occurred really outside marriage. So you have like the legal point of view, but you also have this romanticization in a lot of cases of extramarital affairs where the, the norms and the kind of actuality of people's behavior lay between those two extremes I think is impossible to say and you almost get the impression that it's a bit like it was it doesn't become a problem until it's convenient to be used against her that like she was able to have affairs extramarital affairs um, earlier on in her reign but then as soon as Narcissus sees his opportunity to take her down or feels like she has become like you described a loose cannon then it becomes an extremely useful thing to level against her in a way that it wouldn't have before yeah and we see adultery being used as a political tool against women constantly throughout this period I mean it's a strategy that Marcelina uses herself earlier in her reign to remove a lot of her political her female political rivals for kind of power and influence um at court she will level accusations of adultery against them because it's very convenient. Um, it's quite easy to fabricate evidence. It's quite easy to kind of seed rumors about that kind of thing. And it's, it's easy to do if, if you're a woman as well. Um, kind of you have those social networks that are necessary to start seeding those rumors. Um, and so it's, it's a very convenient political tool. And it's a very effective one because if you're convicted of adultery, you are exiled, you're removed. Um, you lose your, your property and your kind of position of power immediately. And just to return to the moment of the scene briefly, we're, we're stood perhaps alongside Messalina. She's trying to appeal to her husband to see sense and to stay with her and her children um, and do the right thing by them. What, what happens? What happens? Well, she is removed. 
and Claudius continues um, down towards the city. Um, and I think this is another reason that we have to see all of these events as a kind of pre-planned coup to remove Messalina from a position of power, because even before this, but particularly from this point on, we see Narcissus in total control of events that are really very choreographed. So he takes Claudius first to the house of Gaius Silius, where he shows him evidence of Gaius Silius and Messalina's affair. He's shown into Gaius Silius's atrium, which is this kind of in this aristocratic townhouse in Rome. And the first thing that Claudius sees is an image of Gaius Silius's father. And that's significant because Gaius, Gaius Silius's father had actually been accused of treason. He was not allowed to show images of his father. And there was this sense that if he is venerating this father who was accused of treason, is this a man who can be trusted to be loyal to the imperial family? Narcissus then shows Claudius heirlooms um, from the imperial palace that Messalina had allegedly gifted to Gaius Silius during the course of their affair, just kind of sitting and adorning Gaius Silius's house. By this point, obviously, Claudius is incredibly angry. Up until now, he'd retained quite a significant degree of composure. He'd been quite difficult to read, but now he's absolutely lost it. Narcissus then immediately takes him to the Praetorian camp, which is the um, encampment on the side of the city of the Praetorian cohorts, who are the only soldiers who are stationed within the city of Rome, and thus they're incredibly significant to the maintaining of like imperial power. Um, so he takes him to the Praetorian camp, where the Praetorian cohorts have already been massed in an assembly to greet him. Claudius, prompted by Narcissus, uh, goes up onto the dais and says a few words to the Praetorian cohorts. And then Narcissus brings in a succession of Messalina's alleged lovers and associates. Um, we have Gaius Silius up first, who doesn't fight the situation and just asks for a quick death, uh, which he is granted. I mean, when, when you're being hauled up before the emperor, alleged of kind of bigamously marrying his wife and the Praetorian cohorts are kind of baying for your blood, like there's, there's not much you can do. And then there's a succession of other men who come after, um, including a very famous uh, Roman actor and some just kind of good looking young men uh, and some of Messalina's alleged associates who are all one by one killed. And Claudius is then taken by Narcissus away from the Praetorian camp um, back to the Imperial Palace to have a little bit of light refreshment after the uh, arduous work of executing. And during dinner, the situation changes slightly. Um, Claudius is getting a little drunk and it's turning into evening and he starts to soften a little towards the idea of Messalina. And he says... I'll hear her out tomorrow. Like, make sure that she's brought to me tomorrow and I'll hear her case. Um, this utterly panics Narcissus, who slips out of the dining hall and goes to one of the soldiers who is on guard and says, basically, make sure that she's got rid of. Um, and soldiers are then dispatched to go and find Messalina. Messalina, after she's kind of removed from the Via Rostiensis, went back to the gardens of Lucullus, which are these incredible, famous pleasure gardens that she owes, owns on the Pincian Hill in Rome. And she has been kind of trying to plan her next move. And she's 
we hear she's vacillating between despair and real kind of confidence that if she can get before Claudius, she has a good case and she can make him believe that she is innocent. Um, so she's kind of preparing this case in the gardens on the Pincian Hill. Her mother is there with her. And this is where the soldiers find her. Um, and they basically offer her the opportunity to kill herself, which she tries to take, but finds that she is unable to go through with. Um, and eventually she is run through by a soldier. Then the news is brought to Claudius. He doesn't ask whether she killed herself or was killed. Uh, he just asks for another glass of wine. Oh, gosh. I mean, it really is like a kind of scene from a from a film, the way you've described it. It's so cinematic and full of so much pathos as well that I know she's not exactly like the most likable woman in the world, <laughs> but um, a kind of great, a great female leader. And she's been a key political player. And it's a really, it's a very tragic way for her to go. Yeah, I think the other thing is like, she's so young. Like, we don't know. I mean, there, there are debates around when she was born. Um which I think is so telling about the position of women in general in Roman society, we basically never hear about them until they marry. Uh, so we kind of always have to guess their birth dates. Um, but she's probably only in, I mean, I think our best, our best estimate is probably sometime around 20 AD. So she's probably only around 28 at this point. And yeah, like she's, she's clearly made errors. She's done quite a lot of murder, probably quite a lot of adultery, um, and she's made also some areas of political judgment, but she's she's been in her early to mid twenties throughout all of this, and I think that is what she, she's not even thirty at this point. I think that's what really gets me. Mm. And was there a sense that there was? Could the story have ended any differently? Is there? And would, could you see a way where she could have outwitted Narcissus? I guess if she'd managed to get in front of Claudius. Yeah, for sure. I think that there is this constant sense in the sources that the story could have turned at any point. Um, and that's partly, it, it, you, obviously we have to take that at some points with a pinch of salt because they're trying to make this scene very dramatic and a way to kind of keep your audience's attention is to create this sense that it could turn at any moment. But I think it's also reflective of something which is just very true about Roman politics in this period that an awful lot of it is personal things are moving very quickly and Narcissus and Messalina in certain ways are relatively evenly matched although obviously they're very different in status in some senses um, Narcissus is an ex-slave but Messalina is a woman and they both have access to the same sorts of kind of political ammunition essentially their both both of their power is predicated entirely on their networks of alliances at court and their kind of immediate access to the ear of the emperor and their influence with him so although in lots of ways their positions are very different in political terms they they do have certain similarities and i think that it is it's certainly plausible that things could have gone differently at a lot of points of this story well, I think it's time to head to our third and final scene um, that you'd like to go to. Would you like to tell us where we are for the conclusion to this to this story? We're now in very early 49 AD, probably back in the Imperial Palace, um, and we are celebrating a wedding this time, a mm. legitimate wedding this time. 
Um, and it is a wedding between Claudius um, and Agrippina the Younger. His niece, the sister of the Emperor Caligula um, and the mother of Nero. And Agrippina has been involved in some kind of machinations, political machinations of her own in the run up to this wedding um, that are probably worthy of Messalina's, right? Oh, for sure. So after the kind of execution of this string of Messalina's alleged lovers, Claudius had stood up before the assembled Praetorian cohorts and he'd ordered them to kill him if he ever even considered marrying again. Um, These resolutions, I mean, evidently, given that we're like two months later, like didn't last very long. And I think Claudius very quickly realises that actually a wife is a very useful political ally. The historian Tacitus tries to claim that, you know, he marries again because Claudius loves women, like he can't be celibate and he like craves being basically like under the thumb of a wife. I think those claims are pretty obviously inaccurate. Like if Claudius just wanted to sleep with someone or be like super dominated by some woman, I think he he didn't need to marry to find that. I mean, he's emperor. But he does seem to quickly realise that he needs a, a powerful wife as a support mechanism at court. And then there's this this fascinating period of kind of lobbying by the imperial freedmen advisors and also partly by the women themselves about who Claudius's fourth wife and second empress is going to be. And so the Narcissus, who's involved in the fall of Messalina, allegedly wants Aelia Patina, who actually had been Claudius's wife before Messalina. Um, and he divorced her possibly in order to marry Messalina. And he suggests that Claudius brings her back because it's going to be kind of the least problematic option. Callistus, who's another advisor, wants um, him to marry Caligula's ex-wife, Lollia Paulina, who is famously rich, famously beautiful, um, also probably can't have children. So it wouldn't bring in like that destabilizing element in terms of like who is going to succeed. Um, but Pallas favors Agrippina, who certainly has the best claims in terms of her imperial lineage. She is a, a kind of imperial princess of the first degree. And so that's that's a big mark in her favour. And the sources also claim that Agrippina is putting her own seductive powers to work on Claudius and is kind of using their family relationship, she's his niece, to sort of get very close to him and take, take liberties that maybe the other women can't. So Agrippina wins out and she is chosen as an ex-wife. But that doesn't mean that they can get married directly. It's actually illegal and also really taboo at this point in Rome for uncles and nieces to marry. Um, And so there have to be like this whole series of uh, things that they do in order to allow this wedding to take place. So Claudius arranges for one of his allies in the Senate, a man named Vitellius, to stand up uh, in the Senate and argue that, you know, the emperor needs a wife, Agrippina is the best option. And marriage between uncles and nieces, there's nothing wrong with it. It's chill, it's fine. It's not incestuous, it's not impious, it's it's all good. And the Senate take the hint that this has probably come from the emperor. Um, and they basically start to beg Claudius and Agrippina to marry. And they kind of say, Oh, if, if you don't do it, we're gonna we're gonna force you to do it. And the crowds outside kind of allegedly join in on these clamors, and Claudius comes down from the Palatine to meet the crowds in the forum and he agrees to comply um, and the couple set a wedding date in early 49 AD Um, and the Senate have to really quickly like rush to arrange another meeting in order to pass a decree to make it like legitimate for an uncle and niece to marry at all and they also and I find this quite funny they try to encourage other citizens to follow suit to prove that this is like generally acceptable and like everyone does this and it's so chill 
but they only seem to manage to encourage a freedman and an, a centurion to marry their nieces. And Claudius and Agrippina actually attend the wedding of the centurion and his niece in person. So the the scene is now set for Claudius and Agrippina to marry. And they do so in early 49 AD, but the day of the marriage dawns on a somewhat kind of black note, I suppose, with the suicide of a man named Lucius Solanus, who is this, this young nobleman who had long been betrothed to Messina and Claudius's daughter, Octavia. And the sources suggest Agrippina had begun sort of moving against Lucius Solanus actually in the months before her wedding, because she wants to clear the way for Octavia to be betrothed to her son, Nero, in order to like cement these alliances between her and Claudius. Um, and so she encourages her allies to bring accusations of incest against Solanus. So ironic, honestly, like it's, and I think Solanus committing suicide on the morning of this incestuous wedding is so petty. I absolutely love it. And I think it's so kind of, he anticipates this perfectly in order to make this point that this is incredibly ironic and that this is a spurious charge that has been made against him. He, his sister is allegedly very beautiful and quite like partyish. And so these charges, I, I suppose, um, are seen to have some degree of kind of plausibility. Solanus is forced to give up his magistracy and his place in the Senate. And it becomes very clear that, you know, that there's no real, getting back for him. And so he has no real choice but to end his own life. And I think, yeah, his choice of the morning of the wedding in order to do this is perfectly calculated to show up that irony, to kind of protest his innocence implicitly, and also to sort of create this slightly black cloud to hang over the wedding, this slight sense that this is ill-fated, ill-omened in a way. I found it so interesting that you included this kind of final twist uh, in the tale at the end in your final scene because it feels like it's, I kind of got the impression, even though this year or these few months even that we've just spoken about or you've told us about so beautifully have been so dramatic. It is by no means the end of a very long, long, never-ending series of political machinations. As soon as you say Agrippina, mother of Nero, I think that you're... (laughs) But this whole world is just um, incredibly violent and and you wonder what kind of people or what kind of person you had to be to survive. And I think that tells us so much about Messalina that she was able to survive for what sounds like quite a long time in, this, in the scheme of Roman politics. Yeah, for sure. And I think what's so interesting is that, so Messalina and Agrippina, the other reason I wanted to include this scene about Agrippina is because these two women are presented in the later sources so differently. Agrippina is presented as, they're both presented quite quite badly in a lot of ways, but Agrippina is presented as this almost like overly masculine, overly ambitious, overly logical figure. And Messalina is presented as dangerous for the opposite reasons, because she's like overly feminine, overly passionate, overly kind of irrational. And it's so interesting because actually, in terms of what they're doing, there are huge similarities between when you actually look at the history. So both women are kind of making these machinations in order to get their sons to be heirs to the throne. 
And they're both using pretty similar strategies of kind of these networks of alliances and these accusations that are very often kind of sexual in nature um, that they're leveling against their enemies. And they also survive in power for very kind of similar amounts of time. Messalina is is in power for the best part of a decade, which is absolutely wild when you think of it. I mean, Caligula had had three wives, three empresses, none of whom really lasted more than a year. The fact that Messalina lasts so long at the top when she's so young is so remarkable. And Agrippina is actually ascendant for a pretty similar amount of time. And yet she's presented later. And I think we still think of her now as this kind of incredible political operator in a way that we we don't think of Messalina. And I think that the key to that difference lies in this presentation of Messalina's sexuality. Well, Honor, it's been a whirlwind tour through a year in Roman politics. And I have to say, I'm quite glad that we're heading back to the present because I don't think I'm tough enough to survive. I think stay for the party and then we can go back. <laughs> but I do feel like I've been a little bit unfair because Rome in these last few months is like messy and difficult. But I'd say AD 48, if you wanted to do like a little world tour of the Mediterranean, it's probably quite a chilled out year to choose. I mean, so it's pretty peaceful places are quite nice i i could definitely do a little tour through greece and egypt well we can do that afterwards yeah (laughs) (laughs) once we've seen all of this happen we'll just go lie on a beach in capri (laughs) (laughs) before we head back to the present you are allowed to bring back a memento with you from 48 slash 49 ad so what would you like to bring before all of this happens in the year before in 47 ad there is this rumor that's put about that Messalina is probably put about by Agrippina herself. So I think we have to take it with a major pinch of salt that Messalina has sent assassins to try and strangle Nero because she sees him as a potential competitor to her son, Britannicus. And these assassins have gone into his bedchamber while he's sleeping, but they've seen a snake and they've been kind of spooked by it and they've run away. And when Agrippina later finds a shed or claims to have found a shed snakeskin in Nero's bedroom. She has that snakeskin encased in a golden snake-shaped bracelet that he can wear as an amulet. And so I think I would take that and have it recycled. Although, I mean, it doesn't do that that much for kind of preserving Nero's success in life. But yeah, I think I, I would take that and I would have it. I'm not sure I would wear it. But that would that would be my choice. That's such a good one. Wow, what an incredible, incredible idea that that was that she kind of that was like a good luck charm for him. I really really like that. Well, Honor, thank you so much for for joining us today on Travels Through Time and taking us into this fascinating world and introducing us to this amazing, fascinating figure of Messalina. It's a fantastic book. I really enjoyed reading it, and yeah, I encourage listeners to buy it. Oh my god, that's so nice to hear as well, because it's not out yet. So you're probably one of the first people to have read it. So that's, that's lovely to hear. Thank you so much. That was me, Artemis Irvin, speaking to Honor Cargill-Martin about the year 48 AD and her new book, Messalina, A Story of Empire, Slander and Adultery which is published by Head of Zeus and is available to buy now. As ever, please head over to our website for more details about this episode and any of our others. And until next time, goodbye.